Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Daily Bible Reading Show, the Instagram edition on Saturday evening. I'm just going to finish up the two passages left for today, Saturday, March the 6th. We're going to be looking at Job chapter 35 and 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So let me begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, that you speak to us in your word and you reveal Christ in our hearts through the gospel. Help us to see him and to savor him as we come to you in the Bible today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we begin with Job chapter 35. Uh, I hope you have a, you've had a good day so far today, a restful day. Um, uh, not, not the best day to be going out for walks, but maybe a good day to be staying indoors and, you know, watching a movie, enjoying one another's company. I spent it eating pizza and watching Pua Chukang, <laughs> uh, this old uh, Singapore TV show in MediaCorp, which apparently put all their seasons and seasons of this comedy show on YouTube. So I watched a lot of that and fell asleep watching that. Uh, but now I just woke up, and so I'm going to pick up from where I left off in Job chapter 35. And Elihu answered and said, Do you think this to be just? Do you say it is my right before God that you ask, What advantage have I? How am I better off than if I had sinned? Interesting question. Let me read that again. What advantage have I? How better off am I than if I had sinned? Verse 4, I will answer you and your friends with you. Look at the heavens and see, and behold the clouds which are higher than you. If you've sinned, what do you accomplish against him? And if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to him? If you're righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness concerns a man like yourself and your righteousness a son of man. Now, this is really interesting. So again, Elihu is trying to explain Job's situation, that he's suffering, and Job claims that he's innocent, therefore he's suffering unfairly. And essentially, Elihu is saying, why does God care? <laughs> he has this, in a sense, lofty view of God, but almost warps this image of God as if God is so far removed from man that he says, you know, if you've sinned or you're righteous. So he says, if you've sinned, verse six, you know, what do you do to him? What do you accomplish to him? But also verse seven, if you are righteous, Job, <laughs> what can you give to him in terms of your righteousness? It's as if God is so far removed such that anything you do, good or bad, has no consequence upon God. A very interesting premise, I think. This, on the one hand, um, presumes this loftiness and highness of God, but almost pictures then a very callous picture of God. Verse nine, because of the multitude of oppressions, people cry out. They call for help because of the arm of the mighty. But none says, where is God my maker who gives songs in the night, who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth and makes us wiser than the birds of the heavens? There they cry out, but he does not answer because of the pride of evil men. Interesting, the pride of evil men, therefore it doesn't answer these evil men. Surely God does not hear an empty cry, nor does the Almighty regard it. Now, these evil men whom God does not hear and does not regard is not just talking about the evil men who cause the oppressions, uh, verse 9, because of the multitude of oppressions. But I think it's talking about the people who are being oppressed, again, thinking about Job. 
that somehow, even though we are being oppressed, there is evil in us, almost either as a result of our sinful condition, or maybe suggesting that we 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 almost deserved that oppression. But either way, God will not listen to you, Job, because even though you've been oppressed and you claim that you're innocent, actually you're not. You have evil or pride inside your heart. That's the claim that Elihu is making. Verse 14, how much less then, how much less when you say that you do not see him, that the case is before him and you're waiting for him. And now because his anger does not punish and he does not take much note of transgression, Job opens his mouth in empty talk and he multiplies words without knowledge. And therefore, he's claiming that Job is taking advantage of the fact that God will not respond because God's again not affected by Job's situation, whether he's proven guilty or innocent, you know. Therefore, Job is just making a lot of noise. <laughs> he's speaking without knowledge. He's opening his mouth with empty talk. Here is a person who on the one hand regards God as very lofty, very God-like, but it's a very wooden and very cartoon picture of God that God does not concern himself with the righteousness of man. And the reason we can say that is because if we've read Job chapter one and two, you know, Job actually, rather God actually wagers with the devil, Job's righteousness. God just says, look at that, look at that. This is a person who is righteous. This is a person who is blameless. And God is almost proud of that fact. And God wagers his righteousness against Job's righteousness. It almost measures it against that. And that's such an antithesis to this kind of picture of God. But I, I, I dare say that most of us would applaud this kind of Elihu, this kind of high lofty view of God to kind of explain situations we can't explain. You say, oh no, God is doesn't bother himself with this kind of situation. Almost like you think of it like a boss who is so far up the ranks that why would he care about what an employee like me, a lowly ranked employee like me, whether, you know, I did a good job or I did a bad job. You know, he, he's at this level, you know, we're here. But, you know, not, not at all. Ours is such a God that when he sees one of his people, someone who is acting righteously, someone who is devoted to him, God actually says, look at that guy. And God almost measures his own integrity with Job's, ties it and links it to him. And, and it's a very different picture. I think it just shows how mind-blowing this picture of God that we have in the book of Job that God is on looking upon us and she sees our lives and sees our righteousness and our sins, and it actually does have an effect upon him. But yeah, uh, I think uh, Elihu gives a voice to this kind of picture of God. And just in case many of us were thinking that's, well, that explains why God doesn't intervene, why there's evil, why there's injustice in the world. It's because, you know, God is his pay uh, level is too high. <laughs> it's beyond, uh, what's the expression that you have? It's beyond my pay grade. I think, yeah, yeah. Go, God's pay grade is much higher than mine. Yeah, but that's not the case. That's not the case. Actually, God is very, very interested in the way that we walk before him, the way that we speak about him. He's actually listening to everything that Elihu is saying here in these words. Uh, he is listening to everything that we are saying and uh, everything that we are doing. If it is, if it is to please him, or not, you know, all these things matter to God. 
So, okay, so that's Job chapter 35. Uh, next passage, 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And this is Paul, and he writes, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Let me read that again. For we know that the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed. It's talking about our body. When this body is destroyed, we have a building, a much more permanent structure than a tent. You know, you go camping and living in an actual building. This more permanent structure comes from God. It's not made with hands and it is eternal in the heavens. Verse two, for in this tent, in this body, we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened and burdened by sin, broken, brokenness, you know, by the very nature of our bodies, you know, being under the condemnation of death, we will all die in this body. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life and not by death. You know, here it's saying that when we die, it's not just that we come to become the spirit, this bodiless uh, spirit. That's why he talks about being unclothed, but that uh, we will have the spirit that will be clothed by this more eternal, more permanent, more glorious, undying body that God will give to us. Verse five, he has prepared us for this very thing uh, is God. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the spirit as a guarantee. And I think that's why we grow. Uh, it's not just that it's so painful, we're so impatient, but actually the spirit in us gives us that longing, that groaning for our true home. And we find this also in Romans chapter eight, which Paul also wrote, that the spirit in us groans, this creation groans, and we groan when we pray to God and God actually wants us to groan in this way, to long in this way for this more permanent home in this more permanent body that God will give us in the resurrection body. Verse six, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord for we walk by faith, not by sight. So there is this distance while we are still in this existence, um, this body, while we are still in our early bodies, uh, we're at home here, but we are away from Jesus, away from the Lord. Yes, we are of good courage and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. What a perspective. Uh, someone who sees this as a temporary dwelling, this earthly life, so that he can finally be not just in that new situation where he'll have a nice body and a nice life, but to be with Jesus. It's that relationship that Paul longs for, to be at home with the Lord. So whether we're at home or away, we make it our aim to please him, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So just verse nine again, you know, in both situations, Paul's aim is to please Jesus in this life and in the life to come at home or away. 
you know, Paul's aim is always in everything that he does to give, you know, make Jesus smile and you know, to give joy to his Lord. For he says, we will all appear before Jesus on the judgment seat. You know, Jesus will come, he will judge all of us. And he says, each one may receive what is due, what's done in the body. So what we do now in this life, in this existence, in this mortal life, in this limited life, all the things that we do now in this life matters, the good and the bad, because Jesus will come back. He will sit on this judgment seat and he will weigh all of us, all of our actions before him. And it could be that he's talking about you know, weighing the good things and the bad things to, to then weigh up whether we'll be blessed or, you know, we'll be weighed, you know, we'll be punished. Uh, more likely for Christians because we know that we've already been forgiven. Therefore, it's weighing this sense of reward, you know, that Jesus actually sees what we've done to please him. Actually, and Jesus will reward us. You know, there are things, imagine that. I mean, there are things that you do today that if it is for pleasing Jesus and Jesus alone, Jesus will reward you for that on that final judgment day. But the other aspect could be that um, it's the weighing up indeed of salvation. Who is saved? Who is forgiven? Who is one of his? And actually the things that we do in this body shows the fruit of that salvation. Actually, th that assurance again that comes from knowing that you're a Christian comes from you know living as a Christian, living in obedience, wanting to please Christ in the things that we do and think and say in this body. So it's not saying that therefore, oh, you've done enough and therefore you become a Christian, but because you're a Christian, God enables you to live in this body, in this life, a life that is pleasing to Jesus and shows that you have received the salvation from Jesus and it will be made obvious on that final day. Verse 11, therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others, but what we are is known to God. And I hope it is known also to your conscience. We are not commending ourselves to you again by giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Paul here is revealing the motivation behind his ministry, his love, his preaching of the gospel for the sake of this church in Corinth. He's saying, you should be um, our letters of commendation. You know, unlike these other people who've come who are commending themselves, you know, <laughs> based on outward appearance, verse 12, you say, oh, look at this, you know, we're so cool, you know, therefore we should be the ones you admire, you should follow, you should listen to. He said, that's not the way we're going to commend our ministry. And that's not our motivation either. It's not so that you will love us more. <laughs> but that it, this is all because Jesus has died and his death caused something to happen for this trigger in this our ministry caused all of us to die for one thing, verse 14. And that therefore, since we've died, 
we no longer live for ourselves and we live for Jesus. So let's go through very slowly. Verse 11, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Again, talking about that judgment seat of Christ in view of that final judgment, they're reminding people, hey, do you realize that Jesus will return to one day to judge the living and the dead? And what we are is known to God. I hope it is also known to your conscience. He says, you know, God can see us, but do you see? Do you see, therefore, our motivations? We want you to see that we are serving Him, and we want you to see what God sees when He looks at us, servants who are, who are not trying to propagate and to make a big deal about themselves, but trying to make a big deal about Christ. God sees that, but we want you to be able to see that as well. That's why verse 12, we are not commending ourselves, by giving, but giving you a cause to boast about ourselves. That's weird, right? He says, on the one hand, we don't want to talk up ourselves, but actually we want to give you reasons such that you can almost be proud of us. That's really weird, right? Cause to boast about us. Why? So that you may be able to answer those who boast about our word appearance. So you see, um, the, the antidote then to answer those who are saying, we maybe, you know, just, just say it out loud. You know, people, people claim, oh, we preach better. You know, we are better leaders. You know, we, we are able to build up your church and lead it in such a way that's more impressive. The way to answer that is not to say, oh, therefore, you know, Paul is so much better. He can do better than you. But no, they are boasting about this other group of leaders that's so different from you guys. Their whole motivation is the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are not doing this for their own advantage. Indeed, they've suffered so much for the sake of the gospel. Now look again at yourselves. You're doing this for personal gain. How dare you call yourselves leaders or ministers of Christ? So therefore, you're boasting about this very, very different kind of motivation for ministry. And verse 13, for if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. Meaning there's this criticism, Paul is crazy, <laughs> beside ourselves. I mean, that doesn't make sense. Why does he do ministry in that way? It's so insane. And here it says, if we are insane, if we are beside ourselves, it doesn't make sense. You know, it, it's for God. It's something that we're doing purely for God's uh, benefit. But the times when you do seem to make sense, that's for your benefit, so that you will understand, so that you will be built up. 14, for the love of Christ compels us. Actually, I missed the old translation, compels. It controls us. On one sense, it, it motivates us, but compels us means I have to do this. Because out of the love of Christ, there is no way I can't do this ministry. Because we've concluded this, that one has died. For all, therefore all have died. And this is the idea of all of us dying to ourselves, to our self-motivations, because that's what Jesus did. Jesus could have just preserved his own importance of his own life. No, he humbled himself. He died on the cross. And that kind of death to self, that kind of death to sin and pride you know, means that we have died as well. It means that we can die in this way. We can serve him, which we couldn't before. Verse 15, and if he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for ourselves, themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. It makes it possible to therefore do ministry not for ourselves, to do it 
for him to have that motivation, to have that heart that Jesus had for God. Verse 16, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Every single verse, every single sentence is a deep, deep theological, theological truth could be a sermon on its own. Now let's try to just very briefly, very, very briefly just run through them, each and every one of them, verse 16 onwards. So verse 16, they don't consider anyone according to the flesh, even though at one point of time they considered Christ according to the flesh. Therefore, the way in which they consider Christ is the way that they consider one another now. So in the one, on the one hand, one, at one point of time, they looked at Christ and you see him, here's this guy who died on the cross. How foolish is that? Here's this guy who could have made it, but he said the wrong thing and then he, he got captured and then you know his disciples left him and his enemies killed him. So what a, what a silly way of leading a rebellion. And so by according to the flesh, that's foolishness, that doesn't work, that's not impressive. But he says, we don't consider that way of thinking of Christ any longer according to the flesh. Now we consider him according to, well, the spirit. You know, that God's wisdom means that this is God's way of saving people through the death of his own son, through him taking our sin upon himself. If we consider that about Christ, therefore he begins verse 16, we don't consider anyone else in any different way. We consider everyone else according to that way as well. It means that when you consider other pastors, other ministers, other ministries, other churches, it means you don't just look at success because that's not the way you look at Christ, right? You don't just look at performance because it's not how you look at Christ. You look at Christ, you see how actually it's the way of suffering that leads towards the way of salvation. Therefore, when you look at a pastor, you look at a minister, you look at a gospel servant, that's that same way of of suffering, of humility, of not self-importance, but God's praise. That's ultimately his motivation, her motivation for serving God. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. And this is a huge, huge pronouncement that almost is saying, you know, this thing that's supposed to happen in the end times, heaven, that new creation, we are in this existing creation that's being, you know, that's going to be wiped away, going to be exchanged for this version 2.0. But no, it's already happened. You're not, you're not waiting for something else to happen. It's already been triggered because if you are in Christ, you're, you should be able to see this change already begun in you, in your body, in your spirit right now, if you are in Christ. He is 
a new creation. The old has passed away. And he says, behold, this idea of behold, so look, look at each other. The new creation has come, the new kingdom, this new existence. I mean, don't wait. I mean, what are you waiting for? In other words, you know, don't wait for some kind of other trigger, other signal for you to begin living a life that is pleasing towards Christ. Don't wait for that call to, for God to say, okay, now you can live to please me. No, now the new creation has already come because God has already given you Christ. God has already changed you from the inside out. Verse 18, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. This idea of reconciliation, coming back together. And the idea of reconciliation is two parties, two people who have been broken apart. They're no longer together, but coming back together. God in Christ reconciled us to himself in Christ and gave us this ministry of reconciliation. We want others to come to be in Christ. This serving God is by bringing others to Christ. Verse 19, that is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins or their trespasses against them, and entrusting us the message of reconciliation. Again, this idea that God is bringing enemies, people who rejected him, people who ran away from him, bringing them back to him in Christ by not counting their sins against them, not pouring out his righteous judgment upon them, but entrusting to us this message to speak to them, hey, God wants you to come. And imagine um, there's this... Um, party. And this is a human equivalent, human illustration, you know, this party. And you know that the person who's having this party doesn't like you or you don't like this person. But this person says, hey, you have this message, this invitation specifically for this person. Said, I want you to come. You know, we're no longer enemies. We're now friends. And it's because of Christ. And this message, therefore, is given to us. You know, we're supposed to tell this person, we're supposed to go out and we're supposed to almost model and uh, model the nature of this invitation. We, we ought to want this person to come as much as God wants this person to come. Therefore, we are reconciling them to God, but we also want them to be reconciled to us. And that's the following verses. Verse 20, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal to you, but through us. So we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to Christ. You know, it's, we have a vested interest, therefore, in this gospel that you come to God. You know, be reconciled to Christ is almost like a summary of the gospel for Paul, you know, that be one again. Don't turn your backs on him. You used to do that, but now come back home. Don't run away. Come back home to God. Verse 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. And that's an amazing, amazing statement. Jesus did not sin, but God treated him as if he was sin itself. You know, all the things that we did that were wrong. Imagine all the things we did today that we were ashamed of. God treated Jesus who didn't do those things as if he was that sin itself, not just a person who sinned, but this actual sin itself that, you know, God hates and God judges and God wants to wipe out. God treats Jesus as that sin so that in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. And this is 
incredible is the whole basis of substitutionary atonement. A substitute is someone who takes someone else's place. Jesus takes our place of sin, but we take Jesus's place of righteousness. It's as if we did all the things that Jesus did. Can you imagine all the things that he did in terms of loving God? and listening to his Father, and obeying him, and submitting before him. God treats us as if we were Jesus. God treats Jesus as if he was us. Him who had no sin, he treats him as if he was sin. We who were full of sin, he treats us as if we were full of righteousness. And that's the tremendous truth of the gospel. That's the motivation for gospel ministry according to Paul. Yeah wonderful, amazing truth that we find here in 2 Corinthians. Yeah, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this transformation that you've begun inside of us. We are the new creation because we are in Christ. And therefore, you've given us this ministry, this message of reconciliation that we are to have this vested interest in others coming to you and coming to Christ, that we should be concerned for them and we should implore to them to be reconciled to Christ, to help us to do this by the Spirit, not for our own self-interest, but for the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.